Good morning, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Yes, there are a lot more chairs out. You haven't gone crazy. By a lot more, I mean 24 more. Um, as of this, or last night when I went to bed, we had to have that many to fit everybody. But we've had some people that have said, hey, our kids are not feeling great. We're going to stay at home, which we appreciate very much. So thank you guys for continuing to, uh, to just be aware of, of what's going on and taking care of each other. Um, as you guys have probably seen in the news, the numbers are back on the rise again. So again, just, and, and if you don't know, that, that demographic that's rising is like my age and younger. So um, we just appreciate you guys being vigilant in, in taking care of each other. So thank you for that. Um, last week we looked at um, the, this first section in chapter 5. And I shared with you last week that, um, that I didn't like breaking it up. But I felt like it was necessary in order to really cover it in the way that the Lord wanted us to. So as promised, we're going to continue today in that passage. We're going to, first, we're going to do a lot more review than we typically would because I want us to be back in that mindset again. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about wealth. And I want us, as we move into this next section of it, to have all of that back in our brains. Because what we see is the preacher gives us these four points on on money and wealth, but then he, he goes from there into an application. And so as we look at the application that the preacher has for us, I want us to, to have those ideas in our heads. So for that reason, we're going to go back this morning. We're going to read verses 8 through 12. We're going to really quickly run through the points from last week, and then we'll move forward for today. So if you would look with me in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, we're going to read verses 8 through 12 together. It says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is again, uh, this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This, is also, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Okay, so when you read these verses, if you're not really paying close attention, it can seem cryptic, right? It's like, why isn't he just coming right out and saying what he means? So let's, we're going to jump through these first four points from last week, and then we'll move on in today. So the first point I made last week was, there's always going to be someone who has more than you. Right, And we know that. We know that just by looking at the people around us, there are those who have more. There are also the, those that have less. And this is not um, a prophecy over your financial status. Okay, This is rather the preacher just identifying the reality that we live in. Right, None of us in here are the most, we- most wealthy people in the world or in this country. Right, Far from it. But, but if we can identify where we are, if we're able to see where we are, that gives us perspective and also peace. Okay? And then rather than spending our lives in pursuit of more, we need to find our satisfaction in God, not in our ability to gain wealth or money. Point number two was, if money's what we're pursuing, we're never going to have enough. It doesn't matter how much money you make, you're always going to want more. Right? As our, our, our intake increases, so does what we purchase, right? We, we buy more expensive things. We get bigger houses, nicer cars. And so it doesn't matter how much we make, we continually add to what we need or what we want. And our motivation isn't a necessity, but rather just a desire often to keep up. We know that phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. We look at the people around us and say, man, I wish I had stuff like they had. And we let that be our motivation. 
But then, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, because we're chasing a moving target, we're never happy with what we have because that goal, that American dream, never allows us to really get there. Because if you talk to people who have those nice things, they're not satisfied with what they have. They're looking forward to the next nice thing that they can get, which means that we, if we're trying to keep up, have to keep looking forward. Point number three is the more money you have, the more that's required of you. I quoted uh, the notorious B.I.G. last week uh, in his famous song, More Money, More Problems, to show that this is not just a biblical concept. It is a biblical concept, but we also see, if we look at that example or many others, that this is something that's prevalent in our country, right, the, in the world. The more that we gain, the more that we're responsible for. We read the parable last week of the parable of talents and saw that the more that we're given, the more that's expected of us. God expects us to use our resources wisely. And the preacher's helping us to see the, the hevel nature of gaining more. The fact that even though we're going to gain more, we're going to lose it in the end. It's, it's just temporary because our lives are temporary. And we also talked about how we assume often that the more we have, the more we're going to be able to relax. But the reality is, is that's not necessarily the case. That's not always how it works. And then point number four is that we can rest in God's provision or work to make more and worry about losing what we've gained. God created us to work, right? That was one of our original um, things that we were supposed to do in the garden. He gave us the garden. We were, we were called to take care of it. But even though we're created to work, we're created within the confines that God gives us, right? That doesn't mean that we are to be a hamster on a wheel just working constantly for no reason, but that we should work as the Lord, as the Lord leads. We talked last week about how we should work from a place of rest, not rest from a place of work. The preacher is telling us that if we will do the work that God has for us, we're going to find the rest that we need. And then we finished up last week by reading together Psalm 50, a uh, selection of verses from there and from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we see in those passages that God owns everything. He doesn't need us to work. He doesn't need our money in order to operate. It says in Psalms that he has the cattle on a thousand hills, on a thousand hills, not heels. That would be different. Okay. But God owns everything. Um, and we see Paul echoing the preacher and, and urging us to work, but not to please God, but out of, out of a motivation of love, out of a, a response to the relationship that we have with him. And in doing so, we're going to experience uh, the contentment and the joy that God provides for us. Okay, So the preacher then lives up to his name. Right In this next section, if you've read ahead this week, you're going to see that he goes from, from making these very direct statements on how we should live, how we should use our money, to then going into some application. Okay? And we're going to look at that today. He calls our attention to a father that has misplaced his, his trust. After revealing the results of that faulty way of living, the preacher points to what he's discovered to be the best way to live. Let's read this application passage together, but keep in mind that he's not saying that this is the only response. Rather, he's giving us a very specific example of, of one man's life, okay? But that point is to help us understand how we are to prioritize, how we are to listen, how we are to obey, okay? So this is one of many possibilities, um, but it's a very real reality for many people, okay, in their day and in ours. So turn with me um, or, or keep going. We're going to pick up in verse 13 and read through 17. He says this, There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. 
As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is always a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Okay, I want to bring some clarity to verse 14 today. It says in there, and I bring this out because when I first read this passage, I see these words, bad venture, and I go, oh, okay, he made some bad decisions. And that may be the case, okay? That's, what it, that's how I read that for myself. But if you look at the language, if you look at what the preacher's trying to say, he say that that may be the case, but in other places in Ecclesiastes, this same word is used to communicate misfortune or a burden. I point that out to show that the preacher isn't just saying don't do dumb stuff, right? The point of this application is not to say don't invest in something that you know is not going to gain, right? I mean, if that was good advice, no one would ever lose because they would not do dumb stuff, right? If we just knew the answer to those things. He's showing that the outcome of our lives is not dependent only on our actions, but also outside influences, right? We, we know, we've talked about before, that my life is dependent upon my actions, but it's also dependent upon the actions of the people that are around us. So, so point number one I want to make today is that we should not place our trust and security in wealth. In these first two verses, this man is focused on keeping his wealth for himself. And in our culture, that's a normal thing, right? That might even be considered a good quality for a person to, to really do their best to hold on to their money. But in the Near East culture, the head of the household controls the flow of money. I was explaining this to somebody um, that I work with last week because we have some clients that are from India. They're first generation from India. And their culture works very much in that way. We've talked about this before. Russ has talked about it, how the head of the household, everyone in the household works, and they bring their money to the head of the household, and then he distributes those funds as they're needed. Okay, do y'all remember talking about that before? Amen. Thank you. All right, appreciate it, Russ. All right, this man would have been watching over, at the very least, um, his siblings and their children and their grandchildren, his children, his own grandchildren, and in this system, everybody earns a wage, they bring it, okay? And this passage could be speaking about the head of a household or to a member of that household that just didn't participate in, in, it, in, the, in the process. So he may have been the head or he may have been one of the children under the head, but regardless, he was not participating in the system that their culture operated in. He keeps that money for himself. Do you see the problem there? Right? The, the, the goal is that, that whether he's the head or, or whatever, that he uses that money for the benefit of the family. But he's keeping it for himself is what the passage says. I want you to see that we can find ourselves on both sides of that scenario. That there are going to be times in our lives where we're not trusting God with the process that he has given us for our own finances. And it may be that we're holding on to it when we shouldn't. Or maybe it's that we're giving it away when we shouldn't. We may be one that is responsible for the well-being of others, or we may be the burden under someone else's umbrella, right? And we need to realize, and I've said this many times before, that our decisions don't affect just us, right? We have to learn to trust, not in our own resources and not just in others, but we need to learn to trust God, right? 
after we learn to trust God, then we can learn to trust ourselves. We can learn to trust others. But we need to trust that God will provide all that we need. He is our security. He is our security. The reality is, is that we can work hard. We can build up a nice little nest egg, right, in our 401ks, our savings account. But if we put all our trust in that, as we've seen recently, COVID happens, the stock market plunges, everybody's 401ks went to trash, right? Our finances cannot replace our need for God as our provider. It doesn't matter how big your nest egg is. That does not replace our need for God. There are a million different reasons why and how that in just a split second, everything we worked for could be gone. So what are we left with? Let's look at verse 15. He says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. My second point for today is that we will leave this world exactly how we entered it, with nothing. You guys have probably seen a cartoon like this or very similar before. Right? Have y'all seen that before? It says, I've always told my people, you can't take anything with you, but Harry must not have been listening. We laugh at that. But we toil away and we gain possessions as if we can take it with us. Right? Think about your own life. Think about the things that you have, like me, that have, like recently, this is a dumb example, but it's a great one, is my Apple Watch has not been working correctly. Right? And so what have I been wanting to do? Get a new one right? New iOS is coming out. Now's the time. You get it now. They're on sale. I don't need a new Apple Watch. If my Apple Watch completely died, it wouldn't change my life. Not in any significant way. But we toil away and we, we think about these possessions all the time. We let it consume us because we feel like it's going to make our lives better. You may not have begun to experience it now, but as you get older, the days, the weeks, the months, and the years seem to get shorter. Can anybody testify to that? That as you get older, Asher, I appreciate that. You know, I was thinking this morning as I was kind of thinking through this, um, I was thinking about how, just because this is a recent example, is I can remember very vividly Chris Draper. Sorry, Chris, you're not here. I'm making fun of you. Um, as an awkward seventh grader, right? And now Chris has a baby of his own and he's married and has a beautiful little family. But I'm telling you, it seems like just yesterday that, you, that Chris was in the youth group. I know... Glenn and Talitha probably look at me and Bethany and it's just, you know, not long ago that I was a really irresponsible college student, right? Now I'm just a really irresponsible adult, but you get the point. You would think that realizing that the world is moving faster would change for us what's important. You would think that for me, as I'm getting older, as I'm watching my own children grow up, as I now have my own teenager, that I would realize that things like an Apple Watch really are not significant in my world. But my brain keeps telling me that it is. What do we do about this? Like, what do we, I want you to think about this. And one of my devotions talked about this this morning, and I may bring that up at the end. But I want you to think about, like, what do you spend most of your time focused on and stressing about? I know for a lot of families, it's money. We worry, we stress, we lose sleep. We work nearly endless hours in order to gain more. But for what? In no time at all, we're going to look back, our kids are grown, they're having kids, and we're in a completely different place in life, and those things, that money that we are so stressed out about, is insignificant now. Now, I'm, I understand, as good as any, that we need money to take care of our families, right? Money in itself is not a bad thing, but we need to have it in the right perspective. 
we're going to look up one day and we're going to realize that we don't have as much as, as others or maybe we don't have what we wanted, but we're also going to realize that it, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference for us, okay? We can't take any of it with us. We can't be like Harry and hook a U-Haul to the earth. I mean, you can, but it's not going to do you any good. We dig up or have dug up in the past Egyptian kings and queens who've put all this stuff in their tombs and thousands of years later they dig it up and guess what? All the stuff is still there, right? We can take it to the grave, but it's going to stay there. It's not going to make any difference. Now, look, I know I'm going to push the boundaries a little bit this morning on what's acceptable for, for a preacher maybe to say in this culture. But have you ever stopped and thought about the American dream? We've talked about that a lot recently. But have you ever, have you taken the time to simply sit and think about what we have allowed culture to deem for us what's necessary? Have you considered maybe that the American dream is not all that it's cracked up to be? That perhaps instead of it being something that's going to bring us joy, it's going to bring us the opposite of that. What if we've been programmed to chase this dream that's going to lead us not to joy but to stress and to heartache because we can't ever get there? The truth that we all know is that we cannot bring any wealth or power with us when we die. So why would we make it our life's goal to attain as much as possible? And you might say, well, Will, I want to leave it for my kids. But Ecclesiastes, the preacher, has already told us that that's hevel as well. Because your kids might waste it. And then what have you worked for? Look with me at verse 16, verses 17. He says, this is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and with anger. Point, next point I want to make today is that even though we know that we will leave with nothing, we spend our lives toiling anyway. Listen, the preacher is describing a trap that generation after generation have fallen into and suffered through. We let the world define what our life goals should be instead of letting God. I want to point back to the garden again, just like uh, the, the, the preacher constantly does. I want you to realize, we're going to look at this in just a second, but Satan promised Eve knowledge and independence from God's rule. Okay? Look at Genesis 3, verse 5. This is Satan. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's promising knowledge. He says your eyes are going to be opened. And then he says you're going to be like God. You're not going to need God anymore because you're going to be just like him. That's the same promise that we chase. We are looking to know more, to have more, and to be in control of our lives. Adam and Eve did gain knowledge and independence, but they sacrificed their joy, a perfect relationship with God, and God's perfect provision in order to get it. And in return for that knowledge, they experienced suffering in their work, pain in childbirth, the loss of a son because of jealousy, because of sin that was in the world. And the list goes on and on and on. They choose to follow what appeared, or they chose to follow what appeared to be good and gave up what was best. Satan laid the trap. He said, won't it be good to know more and to be like God? And they go, yeah. And so he said, just eat the fruit. Just do the thing God told you not to do. And they did. But we need to understand, and I believe that the preacher is trying to prevent us from falling into that same trap. We need to see it. Here he is showing us that it doesn't matter how much money or power you have, there's darkness, there's sickness, and there's anger. 
No amount of wealth can ever deliver us from sin and death. It does not matter how much money you have, how much you make, how much you save, how nice your car is, how big your house is. None of that is going to save us from sin and death. Yet we allow the world to convince us that those are the very things that are going to make us happy. God wants us to realize that He has provided and will provide all that we ever need. Yes, there are going to be times where we suffer loss and, and are in need more than, for more than what we have. But that's precisely why God calls us to live in, in community. So that when we're in those times where we have more need than we have wealth or money, that we can live in community with the people and say, hey, look, I'm struggling. And they say, I got you. And the reason they can have money to help you with is because they're not just spending it frivolous. We, we've talked about this at length as we went through the book of Acts. If we're allowing God to make the calls on how we manage our finances, we're able to offer assistance not because we can afford it, but because God can. God's intent is for us to support one another in times of need. And God wants us to experience the beauty of His provision. But just like we've talked about in Colossians so many times that we are, Christ in us is the hope of glory. That's not just about sharing the gospel, but it's about sharing life. Sometimes the hope that people need is the fact that we have been abiding in our finances and allowed God to speak into that and to control it so that when someone else is in need, we can be the provision that God intends. God wants us to experience the beauty of His provision and His goal is to bring us back to that relationship that He first started in the garden. Right? And Jesus was, was a big part of that plan, obviously. He came and took care of the sin problem for us. He sent Jesus to repair the broken relationship. But until Jesus returns and this world ends, we are God's representation on the earth. And one of the ways that we're going to experience God's provision is by all of us letting Him call the shots with our finances. I don't know if you remember Glenn saying this in the past, but God's going to provide for His people and sometimes He's going to do that through your checking account. I think Glenn said checkbook, but nobody uses one of those anymore. Right? Sometimes the way God provides is through your checking account. We cannot be God's love in a broken world if we are not willing to let God control our finances. That's not the end all, but it is a big part of it. So where does this leave us? If the American dream is actually a perpetual nightmare, okay, and I know that's strong language, but I'm using that on purpose, what's the point of life? If the American dream is a perpetual nightmare, what's the point of life? I call it a perpetual nightmare because as I was thinking through this, I was reminded of a dream that a friend of mine told me about that he had when he was in elementary school, okay? And it's a funny dream. He was in this giant room, no doors, no windows, and there was a gigantic chicken chasing him, trying to eat him, and he couldn't get away. Just picture that in your mind, okay? It was a rooster, it had to have been, because they're mean, okay? But that's... That's the hamster wheel of life that we're on when we're letting the world, when we're letting culture set our life goals for us and say, this is what's to be attained. We're just running from a giant chicken, okay? If we've always believed that the key to happiness was the pursuit of the American dream, what do we do now? What do we do now? What's the, sac- what's the satisfaction? Where is it? Where do we find it? Let's look at it, verses 18 through 20. It says, Behold, what, have I, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 
Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The preacher isn't saying that, that it doesn't matter if you're poor or blessed with wealth. He's saying that joy is found in enjoying God's gifts. Joy is not found in how much money we have. Joy is found in God. We see the same response in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 24 and Ecclesiastes 3 verses 12 through 13. We've looked at these already, but I want you to see this, that there is this repetition that's happening in this book. That the preacher is pointing out a problem that he's seen, and then he says, here's the answer. In verses 2, 24, it says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is also I saw, this also I saw is from the hand of God. Sound familiar? Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. For the third time in our book study, we've seen that the preacher points us back to the garden and specifically to the purposes to which we were created. God created us to be in relationship with him and with one another. And God created us in a place of his provision where everything that was good to eat was there in the garden. There were fresh streams to drink from. And that's the place that God wants to take us back to. How profound is it that we seek happiness in what we can gain for ourselves and all the time God has provided both what we need and what we desire. I want you to think about that. We spend our time working, trying to gain things to find happiness, to find joy, to find satisfaction. And what the scripture is pointing out to us and what we see when we look back to the garden is that when God created us originally, we had all that we needed. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something. Let me lay it down like this, okay? You might be like me. You grew up in a middle-class family, hadn't really had to struggle for much your whole life. That was my experience. Now, I know a lot of people in my life who have, for the majority of their life, have lived well below the poverty line. I've also known people that had way more than most. And I've known some people that had a lot and lost it all, and I've known people that had a little and gained a lot. But the same is true for all of those people. If you go and sit down and you buy them a cup of coffee and you say, tell me about your life. Tell me about how God has taken care of you. And all of those people will say, God's provided for me. I've heard stories from many people in this church of being in, in places where they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And God provided it. Now that's not been my experience, but it doesn't negate what I've experienced or what that person has experienced. The truth is the same for both of us. That our joy, our satisfaction is in God's provision, not in what the world has to offer. Here's the thing. We need to rid ourselves of the idea that wealth will bring us joy. That's for me, as I think about the American dream, that's kind of the heart of it. It's where the rubber hits the road. It's the, the goal of the American dream is to, to build something that's going to make you a lot of money, money so that you can be happy. You may have a different definition for that, but that's what I see. And the reality is, is that that's not going to bring us joy. If you're unhappy where you financially are right now, if you make more money, you're still going to be unhappy. Just write it down. It's true. 
I want to let that settle for a minute. If you are unhappy where you are right now, you're going to be unhappy if you're making more money. That's not going to be the fix. We've heard our entire lives that the key to enjoying life is to make lots of money so you can do what you want, right? Make a lot of money, retire early, go do something fun. Here's the problem, okay? That's the goal of the American dream. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that arguably the wisest, richest man that's ever lived is telling us that we will not find joy in wealth and possessions, that they are only temporary. Where does he say we're going to find joy? He says repeatedly through this book that we find it in food, we find it in drink, and we find it in the work that God has given us. Listen, if you don't want to take my word for it, I can understand that. But you cannot ignore the words of the preacher. You can't ignore, look with me in Luke chapter 19, you can't ignore an encounter that Jesus had with a rich tax collector. Okay, look at this story with me, Luke 19 verses 1 through 10. We know this story, but I want us to read it. I want us to see this. It says he entered Jericho, he's talking about Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass away. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of the man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come into this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus has this moment where Jesus just sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Let me go eat at your house tonight. And it changed everything. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He got it dishonestly, yes. But this moment, this interaction with the Son of God changed everything. And all of a sudden, his joy was not in that wealth, but it was in Jesus. Prior to this moment, gathering wealth was the goal of his life. And just meeting Jesus filled him with joy. And that joy drove him to give away everything that he had. You might think, well, well, this is an isolated case. Besides, Zacchaeus stole all his money, right? He stole that from people, so of course he gave it back. But what about the rich young ruler? You know this story as well. Look at it with me again. Mark 10, verse 17 through 25. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by saying this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So here's a man who has everything. He had everything. But it didn't bring him joy. What did it bring him? It brought him sorrow. Because Jesus said, that has been made your God. Your wealth, your possessions, that's what's most important to you. Give up what's most important to you. Make me most important to you. And then you can be my disciple. And he had to walk away. Do you see the lie that Satan has convinced us of? Do you see it unraveling? Are you beginning to see that, that chasing the American dream is not going to bring you the joy and the satisfaction and the rest that you're looking for? It was the love of his things that caused this young ruler to walk away in sorrow. And the issue with wealth is that we so easily turn to it for our happiness, for our joy, for our security, for our peace. If we allow our desire for more to be the driving force in our lives, we're going to get to the end of our lives and we are going to be like the rich young ruler. We're going to be filled with sorrow because we're going to have missed out on the things that God had for us. Blackaby this morning talked about the same thing. He quoted Luke 12, 34. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Another verse we've heard our whole lives. But I want us to see it in the context of what it means to be the body of Christ, to be individually a believer, to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to give up what's most important to you and make me most important. Blackaby said this this morning. He said, if you are unsure of where your treasure is, examine where you spend your available time and money. Reflect on what, is most, uh, what you most enjoy thinking about and discussing. Ask your friends to tell you what they think is most important to you. Ask your children to list the things most valuable to you. It may surprise you to know what others consider to be your treasure. Listen, the input of friends and our children is great and it's revealing. I encourage you to do that. But more than anything, we need the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts. We can't be the church that God's called us to be. We can't be the followers independently that God is calling us to be if we've made our finances the most important thing in our life. We need to see wealth as a tool, not as an end. If God has blessed you financially, that's fantastic. Ask Him how He plans to use that money. Don't keep it all for yourself. I'm not asking you to give it to the church. If the Lord tells you to, I'm not going to say no, just so we're clear. Okay, that was a joke. What I'm asking you to do is to ask the Lord. Say, God, I, this is the money that I have available to me. I was thinking about on the way here this morning of um, the loaves and the fishes. It doesn't matter if you have just a tiny amount or if you have a ton. God can use that. It's not about the volume for Him. It's about you. It's about your heart. God has gifted us with all that we need for joy. And it's Him. He's our joy. He's our rest. And what he's asking for us, what the preacher is telling us is that if we are counting on our wealth, if we're counting on our 401k, if we're counting on our savings account to keep us happy, to help us feel safe, to help us feel taken care of, we have misplaced our trust. Our trust for those things in our lives. Our trust for everything needs to be in God. Let's pray together. Father, the word that you have for us over these last two weeks is very challenging for us. 
It's going to push us to, to live in a very different way from the people around us. It's going to cause us to, to sacrifice things that we feel are incredibly important to us. Father, I'm asking today that, that individually in each of our hearts, Father, that you would begin to reveal the things, if it's money, if it's possessions, whatever it is in our life that we have placed in priority above you. God, reveal those things to us. And then give us the heart, give us the courage, give us the desire to follow you in obedience, to do as you call us with each of those things. That's my heart, it's my prayer this morning that, that our, our people would not just hear a message about you need to give more to the church or you need to give more away to your neighbors. God, that's not the goal. The goal is to make you our priority. The goal is to, to just let our finances just be another piece of paint on the palette that you can use at your will. Father, I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would not um, grow tired of us. Father, it's my, it's my prayer for myself that you would change what's important in my life, that it would be all about you and about your ministry. Father, help us to, to see you and to experience joy and satisfaction in such a way that we laugh at the idea that money could ever bring us those things. Jesus, I beg these things of you. Amen.